AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for July 28th, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Uh, today, we're joined uh, online uh, via video. We have John Markley. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you. Glad to be back. All right. Thanks for being here. And also on the couch here, we have our uh, great security analyst for AT&T. We have Matt Kaiser. How's it going, John? Hi, Matt. How's it going? And Stan Nurilov. How are you doing, Stan? Pretty good. All right. Great. And uh, I did want to acknowledge uh, we have a lot of stories that are coming out lately. Uh, Black Hat and DEF CON are next week, so a lot of those stories are kind of getting a little bit pre-released uh, for discussion. You have some comments on that, Matt? Yeah, there's, there's a huge amount of new security news, and most of it is, is sort of a teaser for talks that are coming up at Black Hat or DEF CON, which most people will know are the big U.S. hacker cons for the year. It's hard to really cover them. I mean, you can, you can cover the, the bits and pieces that have been teased out or right. the... the I, I, I'd like to use the word hype because some of this stuff is it's very exciting and flashy when you don't know the mystery behind how it's being done because most, most people will save the good details for their talk right. to get people to come. I tend to think that some of this is being you know, blown up to be much bigger than it actually is. So it's, in my opinion, you know, we're going to sort of save those stories for after they've been reported and once the details are all out, right. and we can sort of separate you the know, good ones from the yeah. from the hype ones, maybe, right? Exactly. Okay. Anyway, so uh, for those you know watching, you're probably watching this the week of Black Hat, so I'm sure there's a lot of interesting stories if you're, you you want to stay tuned to what's going on in that because uh, it seems like there's a lot of interesting stuff coming out in Black Hat this uh, this uh, year around. So. Uh, all right, so first story we have is, uh, oh, it's my story. Um, so the first story is uh, I wanted to make everybody aware of there was a vulnerability uh, recently acknowledged in Bind. Uh, Bind is the software which uh, basically provides DNS resolution service. So it's, there's a few vendors out there, but Bind is probably the biggest one. Uh, it's by ISC, and um, they acknowledge that there's a flaw uh, which involves the way Bind handles uh, some queries related to transaction key records. This flaw exists in pretty much all major versions of Bind, uh, 9.10 up into the 9.8, 9.9 branches, etc. Um, I would recommend you go take a look at that uh, to see if you're impacted. There is a patch available. The thing about this one, it's kind of one of those things where it made me really nervous because DNS, as we know, is kind of the glue that keeps all of the internet really working. Uh, DNS is that thing when you type in, you know, uh, an address in your browser, like google.com, that name gets translated to an IP address. The way that happens is through bind. So if that process is broken, uh, you can't basically can't get to anywhere on the internet. So the vulnerability here is that someone has uh, discovered that there is a way that they could very trivially send a single packet that's pretty easy to create that would crash the bind process, which if someone did that in mass across the entire internet could effectively just, you know, create an entire blackout on the internet, uh, which would be a problem. Fortunately, the person who reported the vulnerability doesn't seem like he's going to be the kind of person who would um, uh, leverage that. Um, ISC is, you know, patched it, so we should have all the, especially the critical uh, DNS, like the root DNS servers will all be patched and whatnot. 
Um, and there's no indications that the vulnerability is going to be has been actively exploited in the wild. So the lid's been kept pretty tight on it. So it looks like we're pretty safe. But had it gotten out into the wild, it would be a real problem potentially. This is, this is one of those interesting bugs that I think scanning for it would actually potentially cause the the bug to be exploited. I mean, I, I'm not sure how you would test for the exact, you know, without right, actually without actually triggering the payload, right. right? So, you know, if you scan, then you'd try again and your server's down. Congratulations, it worked, but then you've 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 caused someone some real heartache. Right, right. So, yeah, one to watch. And uh, as I said, if uh, if you do run uh, your own DNS service for your company um, or even for larger parts of the internet in general, that's this is something that you'd want to take uh, take attention to and uh, get your servers patched as soon as possible. It's not the first DNS issue we've seen either, right? It's 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 one we've seen in the past, so to just keep it up to date. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, usually the people who are maintaining DNS are pretty much on top of it because everybody knows that it's kind of a critical service on the internet, keeps the internet basically functioning. There have been cases in the past that people have identified. I don't know, well, maybe there have been, but I'm not aware of ones that could actually create a denial of service against the DNS service or against the bind service. But um, I know there's been some, uh, what was the transaction ID one that, where you could spoof, you could do like some injection of uh, DNS uh, you've got me. Uh, anyway, I I seem to recall something like that. Was you can yeah the Kaminsky the bug or something like or that, something right? Like that. Yeah. Right. Moving along, uh, story number two. Uh, it's one you were looking at, Matt. There's a new bug in OSX that looks, or I should say, OS, OS 10, 10. <laughs> uh, that uh, can be leveraged. Can you give me more information on that one? Not just OS 10. OS 10 10.10. .10. Oh. I'm not even kidding. OS I was X, reading this. X, 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 X. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Stefan Esser, who runs the blog sectioneins.de, which I think it's a great name, I have German background, so anything German, I'm just like, yes. Um, he found this bug in OS X. Uh, apparently, the developers in this version, they introduced a new feature which allowed you to arbitrarily log to a file, any file you want, okay. which sounds like a good idea, you know, a little more flexibility. Unfortunately, they left out some very important checks, and they're also using an environment variable that a user can control. So what it adds up to is that this bug allows you to writes arbitrarily to any file on the file system, including the ones that are usually protected by root. Oh. And you can actually use some clever tricks based on this to get, you get a, a privilege, exp, uh, sorry, escalation. escalation right, right. Which means that you can go from being a regular user on the system or a regular process on the system to being root. And at that point, the game is over. So it's pretty interesting. There's this variable dyld print to file. I think it has to do with a dynamic loading function. Mm -hmm. um, and it's there's a few other things that are interesting about it, like the child processes. If you if you use this variable, it doesn't actually close that file, the log file that you've written to. That handle still exists. So if you have child processes, they also have access to that. Even set UID processes. So it sort of just starts spiraling uh, okay. out of control. So it's it's interesting. Um, Ten. 10.10 is affected, 10.10.4 uh, .10 and 10.10.5, .10 the beta, 10.11 uh, is not affected at this point. So something to keep out an eye out for. If yeah, you're using so this would OS be one 10. where I would be concerned that, you know, uh, a bad person, like a, a malicious malware writer, would use this in order to deploy malware, you know, with root level privileges onto a machine, which, you know, would be the problem. Right. Uh, if, so. if, if they had managed to get something on the machine or, you know, you've got a process that's properly restricted because it, it's not allowed to be root, it's only allowed to run in its own little corner of, of the operating system, you know, this is the way that you would allow, that, that process would be able to jump up, become root, and then start 
wreaking some serious havoc. Right, right. So it's not a remotely executable bug by any means. That's an important point to make, is that this is just a local privilege escalation. This is not remote. This is not code execution right, right. by itself, but it permits you to get the permissions you need in order to do it. Right, but if I could send you an email that had an attachment with an executable in it, and you were foolish enough to open that up and run it, they could escalate their privileges and then put some some worse malware on there that has escalated privileges. So Correct. Um, and yeah. the, the proofs of concept, and I know Stan was looking at them too, they're fairly simple. I mean, you really just have to, you know, write a little bit of code that asks for the right permissions, and then it, it just kind of works. It just gives them to you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> as long as you're, you're including that, that reference to the, um, the environment variable, it seems that once you've opened that door, that's it. Right, right. Okay. Game over in, in, in that case, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. All right, uh, interesting story. Want to keep an eye on to see if anybody starts actively exploiting that in the wild. Um, you know, as Macintosh in general, uh, Apple's operating system, you know, it used to, for a long time we saw the PC market dominated with malware, and it seems like more and more over the past 10 years, maybe a little less, you're seeing a lot more um, uh, Mac-related types I'd, of malware. I'd be interested to see if there's any sort of correlation between, I assume there is correlation between market share and yes, the availability sure. of bugs yeah. for those platforms or the, the interest in bugs. I just want to know what, what's the, the time gap. You know, at what point does someone wake up and say, wait a second, these guys have got X percent of the market, it's time to start developing. Right, right. Yeah, we, we, saw, that. we saw that with Unix. So you remember in the, you know, in the 70s, 80s, you know, we saw a lot of Unix vulnerabilities and, and worms, and then all of a sudden PCs you know, burst out as a larger uh, body, and you, start, you stop seeing Unix stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was just reflecting, you know, when you're talking about in the old days of Unix, uh, there used to be, there were lots of various bugs, but one of the real simple ones is like a process would start. You know how a lot of processes that start on Unix, they drop a, like a, a file in the temp directory that has the PID. And then when they want to shut down, they basically will cat that PID file. They'll say like kill and then cat whatever's in the PID file. So in some cases that PID file would be writable by anybody. So you could just put in semicolon and then your process. So then when this process would shut down, it would it would run your whole thing, and you would basically be able to take process? yeah you as root. <laughs> so um, uh, there's still a lot of vulnerabilities you could look for on. That's like an old school trick on Unix. If anybody cares to look for processes that aren't smart about how they shut themselves down. Uh, in any event, good good uh, good story. And uh, moving on to the next story, uh, John, you had some uh, some tips on uh, keeping your device secure. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that one. Sure, sure. So, so basically what I, I've kind of come to the realization is, is that there's a lot of things that we all seem as, as common sense. You know, we do it every day. We say it on this program all the time. And, and it just becomes a matter of let's put it all on one slide, maybe hit some of the high points, especially as we become more and more mobile dependent in this, uh, you know, mm -hmm. in your world. I mean, nobody lives anymore without having their, their cell phone, you know, glued to their side like we used to have our pagers, uh, probably more so. so. So I put together a little slide to try and capture some of the, the more common things that we, we recommend for, uh, you know, keeping your, your mobile device secure. You know, the first few are simple, right? Set and use passwords. You, would, you wouldn't be surprised at how many people that's the first thing they want to do is, how do I remove this password? on my on my mobile don't do that <laughs> you know that's a lot of the attackers want the physical access to the you know, to the device 
the common sense stuff. You know, don't don't if you get an email or a text or or a message from somebody you don't know and it contains an attachment or contains a web link, don't click on it. Don't open it up. Just delete it. I, I hate to say that you might lose somebody's, you know, somebody new, but still it's it's you know, we see too much of that. So so those are the kind of the common sense ones. More on the mobile side, uh, keep your device uh, up to date. You know, the, the apps all get regularly updated for security issues. So does the operating system. You got to keep it up to date. We always say don't jailbreak or root your device. Kind of goes back to the up to date mm -hmm. thing, right? You can't up keep your device up to date as well as if you rooted it and now no longer can you get access to the, uh, you know, the current uh, version of the operating system. And also, if you think about it, that kind of leads to the next item, which is don't go to the third-party apps. You know, you want to get your stuff from official sources. A lot of people root and jailbreak their device to get the data or the app off of something that they maybe not normally be able to get to. And it becomes a matter of, well, where did that data come from? Where did that app come from? And most of the malware that you see, especially in the, in the mobile environment, comes from third-party app stores that are not official. So, so just that's something to keep in mind. The, the latter two things that kind of are a little bit more tricky, keep aware of, you know, when you install an app, most apps ask you for permission. Android asks you up front what your permissions are. iOS a lot of times asks you in the, as the app runs. You know, be aware that does, does that app actually need access to your camera? Does that app actually need access to, you know, your, your texting? You know, so there's things that apps ask for all the time, and you think, why does it really need that? Um, and then the last point that I had to make on this slide really is, is observe and check uh, unusual behavior on the device. It's, it's really kind of more complicated, but if your device starts acting funny, you know, you get a funny pop-up, the web browser, you're surfing a web and the URL link and the, is different than what you thought you went to. Those are just things you just got to keep, uh, keep aware of. And, and, and then once you've seen that, try and figure out how do I fix this or how do I respond to it properly. So just a you know quick quick hit things to to think about when uh, you know keep that device secure. Hey John, another good thing to look for probably is if your battery is dying a little bit faster. I think a lot of malware when it installs itself, it really runs the battery dry. So that would be another good thing to look for. A hot screen maybe if your screen is on all the time. That sometimes malware disables certain uh, you know the the phone from going to sleep. So those would be some of the other things. To and, I, and I've seen that. That's that's a really good good idea, Stan. Because because I've seen you know if you look at you know like you look at uh, most of the devices that you have nowadays, the current ones all have some kind of thing that lets you tell the battery indicator what was using the last bit of, of the you know the ergs of, of energy out there on your device. And you think, well, why at two o'clock in the morning, or why is you know such and such an app so busy? Yeah, no, I think you you've covered the really important bullet points here. And I think the first uh, two or three, you know, having a, a password lock on your phone, don't open or respond to emails that have weird stuff in there that might, you know, infect your device. And then installing only from the official store, that's going to probably prevent you from having to deal with any of these other things, like getting an app that's going to ask you to access your microphone for some reason. Like, why is this movie, you know, listing program trying to access my microphone? Which means it's probably got something else embedded in there that's trying to do something bad. A good list uh, to pay attention to. And uh, if you have the option to set complex passwords, I would recommend that too. You know, some phones have the ability to have more than four digits for the, for the password. Uh, you know, we've seen that there are some unlocking tools out there, right, that you can plug into it like a bad guy if they get your phone. 
they can plug in and we'll try to brute force the password and then reboot the phone before, like, I guess it does like three tries or something, reboots, because after the fourth try, the phone will automatically lock and not accept anybody else's, you know. Mm -hmm. So they, they have a whole scheme to try to brute force the password automatically and stuff. Uh, so the more complex you can make that, the better, um, in case your phone does get lost. I, I would actually say, on the same note, there's the, um, some people will use the, usually draw a pattern shape mm. on it, and that's, while that's okay, and people would think it's you somewhat can. like a pen, there's something to know about that is that when you take your finger and you wipe it across the screen, you basically draw with the oils from your fingers mm -hmm. the shape of the pattern of your, your password. So anybody who turns the screen off looks at it, and if you haven't used that phone since you did that, you'll be able to at least pick out the path that you picked. Maybe they have to try it twice to go backwards, but you know it's not as secure as simply tapping the screen on the in the on the pin pad or entering a password with the keypad. Right. I, I actually saw I actually saw somebody break that just a little bit of baby powder, just sprinkle it on top of the phone and see that oil. Yep. Oh, interesting. Well, yeah. All right. Good tip. Very interesting. All right. Well, thanks for the uh, thanks for the tips on that. And um, uh, I think I learned something out of that one because I did I did not know about the baby powder one. That's for sure. Uh, so moving on to the next story, this one's a little bit more hardcore. Uh, so Stan, you were looking into this new hammer toss espionage tool uh, that's out there? Yeah, FireEye uh, released a pretty, pretty good report tying a new piece of malware to a, a known APT group. They associate this with Russian hackers. Mm -hmm. uh, they call this the APT29 group. Some people call it Cozy Bear or Mini Duke or other things like that. So the reason they do that, I guess, is because they've noticed um, these hackers seem to come from uh, a time zone that's associated with Russia. So they're, that's where they're attributing the activity to. Now, what's interesting and unique about this tool is how many techniques it uses in order to stay advanced with how it gets its C2, so the way it communicates to the attacker. Um, I know we've seen these kinds of techniques with other malware threat actors, but apparently you know, the, the number of, of these techniques and the way the malware tries to stay stealthy on the network is really, you know, was impressive to FireEye, enough that they described this uh, in, in, in large detail in this report. And now uh, they actually mentioned that they've only seen this deployed, I think, at, at like one or two organizations. So this mm -hmm. malware is so advanced targeted. that the bad guys are only using this variant on a few enterprises like when they need to uh, in some of the victim's environments. So what are some of the techniques? Well, the simple variant is obviously uh, the malware goes out and it knows what the communication C2 is. But uh, the second variant is actually it goes out to like Twitter. So it generates a Twitter handle daily. Uh, every day the malware is going to run, it creates a, a new Twitter handle that is going to contact. So, so it is it using some kind of like like Twitter name generation algorithm or yes, something like there's that? there's a Twitter name generation algorithm. It's probably very similar to like DJ algorithms yeah. that we've seen used. So this one uses somehow like the, you know, like these things usually do, the date and some sort of a checksum on top of the date and then concatenates it with like some sort of a word or something mm -hmm. like that to make it look unique. So now, you know, only the attackers will know, plus the malware, how to generate the next name. So every day a new one will be generated and the malware will go out to Twitter and look for tweets. So if, if, the, if there are no tweets or if this thing is not registered, the malware kind of goes back to sleep. It'll uh, wake up the next day and try the same thing. Uh, but if the Twitter handle is registered, then basically what happens is you get a little blur. There's two pieces of information you get. You get like a, 
a unique key and like some sort of a file size and a domain. And so basically the malware goes to that domain and looks for like an image or something, some kind of like a file that's around that size, you know, whatever the number is. And it sometimes it's like a JPEG or something like that. Mm -hmm. And inside the JPEG, at the end of the where the valid data would be, they append a blob of encrypted C2 communications. And that's encrypted with two pieces. The one piece is the thing that's hard-coded in the malware. So there's a, a key in the malware that's hard-coded. But the other piece that's combined is the key from the Twitter message. So it uses those two pieces of information. Uh, in order to decrypt. So now, right, in order to decrypt, you really have to have both. You have to have that Twitter message. You have to have the piece of malware. So just having one or the other is not going to help you. So it's just one, way, one more way to kind of prevent people from knowing what the commands are uh, who come in later to do the forensics. And then, obviously, you know, once they decrypt the command, they can do pretty much anything. I think some of the things they might be able to do is, uh, I think this group in particular uses a lot of legitimate services out there, like cloud-based hosting, like, for example, a OneDrive or Google Drive or things mm -hmm. like that that normal people would use too, uh, but they might, have, they might pass the credentials. And like stolen information from the victim would be uploaded there. Um, so those are some of the techniques. It's, it's pretty... It's not a technique that we haven't seen before. It's just, I guess, the combination of all of these things together, you know, using um, these online storage mechanisms, using Twitter in combination with the DGA-type activity. Uh, so the combination of all of that, splitting up right. the keys, I think that makes it really advanced. And it seems like this hammer toss malware is really, you know, special for this group. They only deploy it when they need to. And hey, if Twitter is blocked or something like that, and you know these guys just move on and use a different variant of the malware. And another thing that FireEye points out is that these adversaries are so sophisticated that they are always watching how uh, the network team is like responding uh, mm. to the victim. You know, the victim network is responding how they're cleaning up the malware, and they always adjust as soon as possible. So they recompile the malware, they deploy new variants. Um, so. It's really advanced threat. It's hard to stomp it out. You know, the C2 is different each time. It could even be different on each computer. Um, and that kind of can hamper some of the efforts to take the malware off the network. So that was, that's interesting. You said that they were very responsive. I assume that by now, anything that came out in that report is probably burned to the ground. Yeah, I always assume any, anything in these reports has always been already kind of taken offline. And that's why, you know, it gets reported on. What could you do? Yes, you could pre-register some of these. I suspect that that generation algorithm, just like the part of the key is hard-coded, I think part of the word that j helps you generate the DGA is also hard-coded. Oh. So you're not going to be able to like pre-register a whole bunch of handles for any campaign. So it's, it's per, per sample of the malware. It has its own. Okay. Ah, okay. Yeah. Exactly, right. So, and we, we know that you know from all these reports, we know that from this group that they'll put they'll hard code the things they need to into the malware. You know, the C2, they'll hard code. The, the key is individual for each piece of malware. So I think it just makes sense that they would do the same for the Twitter handle, well, for them. If they were smart like Stan is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, this, this group, this APT29 group, they call it, um, you know, the, being from Russia, I think we, you know, a lot of times we associate a lot of this nation state intellectual property theft with China. And for years, like past 10 years, it's been that way. 
I would say, with the past year or two here, it seems like this particular group has made a lot of, they've been in the press quite a bit yes. in terms of doing similar types of tactics with similar types of very um, advanced tools like this uh, that are very good at acting covertly on your network in a way that you're not going to pick it up. Yeah. And uh, one of the things you mentioned is, you know, it might only check in once a day. So you, if you're trying to monitor a massive network for your enterprise with hundreds of thousands of endpoints and only one machine's infected, it trying to hit up to Twitter once at 3 o'clock in the morning, let's say, you might not notice that. Uh, chances are you were not going to notice that. And uh, so that makes it really difficult, whereas a lot of the traditional malware we see is usually a lot more noisy. They'll like check in every five minutes you know, up to the command and control, where these APT guys, they know try to stay low and slow, hide in the background noise of your network traffic. It sounded like it was a pretty good report, pretty detailed from what Yeah, I think uh, so. I think saying. everybody should take the opportunity to read it. There's also um, an MD5 sum in there as well. So researchers can go up to like VirusTotal, download the sample, and go ahead and you know, reverse engineer and figure out how it works. So if they ever have to face a threat like this, you know, they'll be a little more right. prepared. All right. Always good to have a good defense. So do your analysis and research so you know what to look for. Um, that might be on your network and you might not know about it. So. Uh, so, on the lighter side of things, you had some uh, some kind of pop culture stuff you wanted to talk about yeah, between yeah. comparing a couple of shows that are on TV nowadays. Sure, so I mean, cyber. We, we at lunch, we usually talk about that sort of thing, you know, have you seen the latest episode of this show or that show? And I know that we sometimes complain a little bit about how hacking is portrayed and defense is portrayed as well. So. Uh, I kind of want to talk a little bit about and compare and contrast two shows that I think are probably the best examples of portraying, or maybe not the best, the most prominent examples of portraying hacking on television. And that's CSI Cyber, which is mm -hmm. on CBS, and Mr. Robot, which is on USA. And they're very different shows, and there's yes. a lot to be said about each one's approach. CSI Cyber, to me, is the same CSI formula. If you've been watching CSI for years, it's the, it's the, the cops always get their man sort of thing with a cyber spin to it. So it's, it treats it sort of like, I don't know how to say, maybe more of a magical approach. And I'll right. explain what I mean by that. Where it's like a, a Disney view of hacking. <laughs> it's, it's, there's, and I can understand the reasons why they do things like this, where they treat it where it's something very different and new, and they try, on the one hand, to explain certain elements of it, but then they also sort of obfuscate and throw under the rug some of the more technical details so that a, an audience who's not familiar with it can really sort of understand it and enjoy it for the, the plot, maybe? Right, or right. for at least to give it a little more of a different flavor than the other CSI shows. I mean, there are, there are experts who advise them on the show, and I'm sorry I shouldn't have used air quotes. I'm sure the experts know their stuff, but the way it translates across is that it's a very sort of scary cyber world out right, there. Very theatrical. Yep. And if you, right. for example, in the first episode, you've got malware that shows up in a field of green code. All of a sudden, boop, there's a little bit of red code, and they go, "Whoa, we've got malware!" Right. Yeah. Like and if you're ever going to be able way, to see, it's going to jump out at you in red code on your screen. It's not going to do that. Yeah. And <laughs> that's exactly how I see it. Like, kind of yeah. like Neo well, and the is Matrix. That an Ida plug -in? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, but only I have it. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, no. I mean, but that's the thing. It's it's a it's an approach that a lot. It's it's more about still being a cop show and still being something that's somewhat relatable but I, I feel like a lot of the important details if you're trying to educate people because at the beginning of every show they add they, they put in a de definition of a term as if you know we're here to teach you 
right, what right. these things are. This is your cybersecurity new scary thing of the week, and you need to learn about it so you can protect yourself. And that's an admirable, you know, if you're really trying to do that, that's admirable. But the number of times they get the definitions wrong and the number of times they get their explanations wrong, it bothers me a little bit. Right, right. I'm sure their technical experts who advise them are probably like, banging their heads against the wall every time they watch whatever episode they just advised on. But, yeah. One um, thing I look for uh, when I watch CSI Cyber is the IP addresses. If you notice, oh, one yeah. of the octets always is invalid. It's over 255? Yeah, it's oh, always over 255, and I always say that to my wife, and <laughs> she never knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so I think to most people it doesn't even matter. Uh, but I find that, you know, to your point, whenever they do explain a security topic, even in the show, they always go on and on about it. Like, uh, that's not how we talk, for example, when we're dealing with something, right? We just say the term uh, and, and we move on. But in the show, they like to explain the terminology a lot. And that's a good segue, actually, into Mr. Robot's approach. Uh, I know we've talked about yeah, this, where I love Mr. Mr. Robot, Robot, you know, it's... The, uh, they talk about hacking, and hacking is a big part of the plot, but when they talk about it, they sort of assume that everyone in the room knows what they're talking about and moves on. And there's a, you know, they throw out a casual reference to a Raspberry Pi, which is a small credit card-sized computer, but I, you know, they wouldn't say that on CSS ever. They're like, well, they use a, a Raspberry Pi, which is a small credit card computer. It's very popular with hackers. Right, right. And, and Mr. Robo's <laughs> like, yeah, it's his thing. We're going to use it. And everybody knows what it is. Let's just move on. Um, and, and I like their approach to malware much more, Whereas CSI Cyber has their red and green code, Mr. Robot, you know, at one point somebody puts a CD into a computer, the terminal pops up and goes away. And that's right. it. And, it's and that's infected. more realistic to how it exactly. would look in the real world. You're not going to see what happened on your machine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's, I think that's the big thing is that the, the creators of Mr. Robot seem to be really striving to get the facts right. The guy that they have as their advisor, he, he wrote a couple books on, you know, sort of, searching for people on the internet and, and sort of collecting intel on people. And that shows there are scenes where they're trying to do background information on their targets when they're trying to break into uh, a facility. And you know, they're, they're working on these things online, they're trying to find their profiles. And it, I, that, that sort of, that, I really like that sort of attention to detail. Yeah, I like in Mr. Robot how it's a drama where you got people who are involved in like their lives and then the hacking is really just kind of under the surface in the backdrop of it. And they don't really try to shove it down your throat and explain it to you. It's just there. So if you know what's going on, mm -hmm. like when I watch it, there's like these little asides that you just throw in. I'm like, son of a, you know, like, yeah. but they don't even like discuss it. It's just a one liner that they just move on right from. And, they, and if you're in the business, you're like, wait a second. That was meaningful what you just said there, you know what I mean? Or they're like, holy crap, you just showed a picture of the social engineer toolkit. I've, I've seen that. Right, I've used right. that. Right. And it's great. Um, the psychology part of Mr. Robot I like too. There's one episode, I think it was the second to latest, where they're, it's mostly about social engineering, but Elliot's oh, trying right, to right. talk his way into the facility. And there's their approach to it, which is, it's, it's sort of depressing, the way that they take this guy and they tear him down, their target, right, and right. they just sort of like ruin his day. But, you know, had it, had it worked out, and it, I don't want to spoil too much, but it seems like a reasonable approach to try to manipulate somebody into doing something. I mean, it, they, they talk about the motivations behind it, the things that people are, you know, they want out of life, the things they worry about, and then targeting those specific human vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you've got the psychology and CSI Cyber, you've got the character of Avery Ryan, who's their, their, their team lead, I guess. She's, but she's also the, she's a psychologist, but the things that, that come out of her mouth 
they don't make sense. <laughs> I, I hate to maybe say because it. we're not psychologists. Maybe maybe we're I'm not an expert guys. on it, but there there are things where she's talking about natural flight or flight responses will cause the the, the bad guys to go to higher ground, and they eliminate all these locations on the map that aren't below like 3,000 feet. I'm just looking at this. This is <laughs> you've got to be kidding me. This doesn't make any sense. But we should learn these techniques, right? So then we'll know to hide like behind, below 3,000 feet or above. If I'm ever on the one, I'm going down. I'm, yes, definitely. Underground. Grand Canyon. Right, right. Never catch me there. It's hard to watch any of these shows after you, if, you, if you've ever watched, you know, war games with, you know, you know, the, the you know, I always flare back to the, you know, to the, you know, Joshua hacking the, you know, they hack the, the computer and the guy responds, you know, the computer responds as Joshua. Those, 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 that show is still, I think, what they're basing things like CSI Cyber on is that's what hackers can do, right? Get into those machines so simply. Well, it's, it's even more like, I think, Hackers, the movie with uh, Angelina Jolie and Johnny Lee Miller. Right. That, that's the sort of flavor I get from CSI Cyber where they're trying very hard to keep people's attention and by making things visually interesting, they're getting way off base. You know, you've got your red and green code, you've got these these huge, you know, the knock that they operate out of, which has all these screens. All I've these seen th one of those once like that. Yeah? Yeah, a knock with lots of screens in it. Was, was it <laughs> does it have a lot of things flying around? No, it doesn't. I mean, I know knocks have a lot of screens, but I, I feel like that most of them are popular with consoles or view graphs and not like right, right, swirling right. things. Not magic. Not yeah. magic. Well, uh, interesting discussion. Um, I think there's probably, you know, I'm on, the, I'm on camp Mr. Robot. I love that show. Uh, I don't really watch CSI Cyber. I think there's probably room for both. Uh, I've for learning in both. CSI yeah, Cyber. No, you watch I make everything. a point to watch it. I mean, sometimes I laugh a little bit, but there are nuggets of things then that you watch and you say, I see what you're trying to do. And for the viewership that they have, there's probably some value in getting people accustomed to the idea that this is out there. Right. Now, whether it's a strict, like a really educational show, and if it has more harm than good, I'm not really sure. Right. It, does, so yeah. I'm kind of surprised you didn't bring up, what is that, that Scorpion show, or what was the Oh, one? my. <laughs> I don't yeah. want to segue into the whole thing, but that one was in Fantasyland. I've seen about, about what, maybe two minutes of that show, and when they were dangling an Ethernet cable out of an airplane right. to plug in a laptop to download the firmware to fix all the planes, <laughs> I said, no, I don't think I can do this. No, no, that's <laughs> not practical. Okay, anyway, moving on. Uh, so let's quickly uh, go over the internet weather. We've got a couple, of, uh, a couple of things to discuss. So the internet weather report, this is where we kind of talk about the trends we're observing on the internet. The first chart here is the most probe ports. So this is where we see most of the scanning activity by sheer volume, not by the number of IP addresses involved in that activity. Uh, so just in sheer volume itself. There's actually uh, quite a bit of movement. We've had a few of these uh, ports go up. We're gonna explain this one. So the real one that kind of jumps out on the screen here is 53 UDP, which is DNS. We're gonna explain that. We're gonna take a look at that in a second. 22 TC well, 23 TCP has been at the top for a long time. That is Telnet. Uh, we know that there's a lot of these Internet of Things devices out there that are scanning to compromise additional Internet of Things devices, like your home router or your security camera DVR or your network attached storage. Uh, all these things, these little devices that people put on their network and they don't realize that they're open for attack uh, or that they might have Telnet running. So a lot of the activity is related to that. 22 TCP is SSH. Similar types of activity going on here with that uh, brute force password guessing against SSH. 80 TCP went down a slot this week. And then the 53 UDP we're going to look at a little bit closer. Some of these other ones like the ICMP echo reply or port and reachable requests, probably not security related. They might just be artifacts of 
some other scanning activity. We usually don't uh, consider that a big uh, security issue. 445 TCP, that's your Microsoft file sharing. Uh, that's down two spots. 443 TCP, your HTTPS is up three spots. That's always really high, so when it moves, it's not really moving that much, uh, so I didn't get a chart on that one. However, this 21320 TCP, we don't normally see that one. We'll explain that one in a chart in a second. And then 8080 TCP is usually looking for proxy servers or other types of things like Tomcat, where there's a lot of administrative services that run um, for various uh, web-type services on that port. And then 1900 UDP is the simple service discovery protocol. That's down a little bit. We've been seeing a lot of reflection activity uh, attack on attack activity on that. So the first one, 53 UDP, if you take a look at this picture here, you can see when I did this report, this is um, actually from July 28th, uh, I grabbed this chart, and you can see it's way up. So it's like 700 million scan flows when we normally have kind of a noise floor of around maybe peaking at 50 million scan flows. So it's probably more than 10 times than usual. This actually turned out to be a DNS reflection DDoS attack against a particular person that we picked up. So somebody was using this protocol for reflection activity. We've talked about that a lot before. And a lot of times that will show up as scanning activity because UDP is a connectionless protocol. So it's kind of difficult to figure out state of if someone's really making that connection or not. In any event, uh, that's what this activity was. So this is kind of an anomaly, not really an increase in scanning so much as an actual attack. And we have other more detailed reports that tell us who was part of that attack or uh, was impacted by that. The next one, this 21320 TCP, this is an unassigned port. And we see a lot of scanning on this in general, uh, and it goes up and down over time. It's kind of uh, increased quite a bit here. This is a 90-day graph, and we're up around 50 million scan flows per hour. When I did a, a look on this, uh, there's actually very few sources. There's only like less than 100 sources. I think it was 80 or something like that actually involved in this activity. But I'm pretty sure it's involved in scanning for proxy servers because when you look up this port on the internet, you'll find that there are certain forms of malware out there. Um, it looks like top arcade hits might be one of them. Uh, as a malware family that once it's on an infected machine, it opens a port on port 21320 and starts acting as a proxy server that mm -hmm. can be used by the bad actor or his network of cohorts to use to proxy their activity. So that's probably what whoever's looking for this is probably looking for that type of activity to use these as proxies for you know anonymizing their traffic. I'm curious, do you think it, did you read deep into this? And I'm, the question I'm looking to answer is, whether or not this is one of those situations where people will compromise machines, set up proxies, and then like start selling them as a service? Or is this sort of just being created for someone's private use? Yeah, I did not research it in depth, um, okay. other than I was just trying to find a rationale for why someone was scanning for this strange port. I'm pretty sure this is the reason, because they're trying to find Now, whether they're trying to find it because they're trying to identify infected devices, or if they're trying to use it for proxy activity themselves, I'm not sure, but okay. um, we'd have to ask the 80 or so people that are scanning why they're doing that. Okay. Um, so in terms of the top 10 most sources probing, this is one that always is more interesting to me because it has a lot less volatility in it because it basically means that you've got a lot of computers that have been compromised that are doing scanning en masse. So somebody's told them to all start scanning. So this is indicative of when you have a lot of machines scanning particular ports at the same time. And again, 23TCP is at the top. It's been at the top for a long time. 
same thing, Internet of Things type devices. 445 TCP, that always, we know that there's various pieces of malware out there that scan for that because there's still that old Microsoft vulnerability that people are still scanning for that config are used and whatnot, and you can still scoop up some machines from that. 27015 TCP is related to gaming, not really a security re uh, related uh, activity. 22 TCP SSH again, and then 17788 UDP. We've been looking at that one for a while. Uh, I didn't get a chart on it. However, it is, um, uh, it is related to some peer-to-peer -peer file sharing stuff like BitTorrent. But I wanted to take a closer look at the 22 TCP stuff. So it went up 18 spots. That's quite significant movement uh, to go up 18 spots in a week. And you can see what really happened here. This is a 180-day chart, and there's kind of a around a thousand or so scan SIPs always scanning with little peaks here that go up to uh, 1700 or so scan sources. But all of a sudden it has gone up quite dramatically in the past week here to about 3000. So it's more than doubled in size in terms of the number of uh, devices that are scanning on this. I didn't get a chance to try to figure out what parts of the world are involved in this activity. Again, I think there's probably a lot of these Internet of Things type devices out there involved with this, um, or a lot of Linux servers and whatnot that run SSH that get compromised and then they start to look for more devices. The fact that they acquired so many very quickly here and they've got so many more is definitely some sort of botnet involved. So it might be uh, another one to take a closer look at. You know, there was the... Um there was a recent bug that was reported, and I'm not sure how widespread it was, that allowed someone to sort of bypass the restrictions on the number of guesses against a, an SSH server. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I, I heard varying reports as to it works everywhere or it works on very specific operating systems, um, but I had heard that it's there, so maybe someone's trying to take advantage of that and Maybe they've been successful, yeah. right, because there's been a lot of recruitment here. They've gone from, you know, around 1,000 or so scan sources to... 3,000, so that's, and it's in a short period of time, you know, less than seven, eight days or so. So definitely one to watch, do some more analysis on and try to figure out if there's any specific botnet that we could find that they're all chattering back to uh, in terms of their command and control. So that's the show for today. Uh, thank you for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can find the AT&T Threat Track program on the AT&T Tech Channel, as well as on YouTube and iTunes. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. Uh, thanks, John. Thanks, Stan. Thanks, Matt. I'm John Hogaboom. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.